This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes as well as some of the challenges they've faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Tuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. Today, we're chatting to Denise Sumpy, founder and principal of SafeSense Workplace Safety. In today's episode, we will be discussing occupational health and safety in the workplace as well as work cover. You'll learn about the process one must take when a workplace injury occurs, how to manage mental health risks as well as physical, and how not abiding by the correct safety measures can result in serious fines. Let's jump in. Hi Denise, thank you for coming on the show. Hi, Savan. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your business, SafeSense Workplace Safety. Yeah, so I've been a health and safety professional for over 20 years and about 12 years ago started my own business. I had been consulting with multinational insurance broker, so I earned my stripes that way and yeah, built up a client base over sort of 10 years, all word of mouth and a lot of repeat business and just really good relationships. And with the business that you're in, in terms of the insurance company, was yeah. that in the workspace area and the work uh, health and well-being and work cover area or was it, that just general insurance? It was a broker. I was in the workplace support area, so work cover claims, a lot of risk reviews and broader risk reviews than just health and safety. And what made you get out of that space and wanted to consult in OHS? Well, I'm in OHS is my career and when I first went into it many, many years ago, I always saw myself as being self-employed and I really enjoy it, still enjoy it, love it. Before we dive deep into the topic of occupational health and safety, broadly speaking, what does it all mean? What is OHS if you wanted to define it? Very good question because there's a lot of inconsistency just in the language around health and safety. So, OHS is occupational health and safety. It's often drawn into all sorts of other areas, road safety, child safety, food safety, but it's quite specific. In all the other jurisdictions in Australia, it is called work health and safety, which is probably a word that people are more comfortable with now. Occupation is a little old fashioned. So even you've got WHS, OHS, it's the same, just a different name. Unfortunately, there's a lot of talk about risks and hazards and controls and just language we don't use in day to day when we're talking about things that can go wrong at work or how people can get hurt. I'd like to see a lot more sort of simplified and just conversational language around health and safety to make people understand it better. Yeah, because I've always known it to be occupational health mm. and safety. And I think the acronym OHS has been so widely used. It's probably been hard to get away from that I guess. Well we haven't had to in Victoria but in the other states it's been WHS for over 10 years. Does a business have to be employing staff to be governed by the OHS rules in Victoria? No not at all so health and safety laws apply to anyone that's really affected by your undertakings so if you are a contractor working on a roof and you drop something off the roof and it happens to hit a person walking past you're in trouble you've got to report that to WorkSafe. And that person that's a contractor that doesn't have a work safe policy or a work cover policy because they don't employ staff, 
they still need to follow all the health and safety rules that WorkSafe put out. They do. And there's a little area that also is confusing because the WorkSafe insurance scheme is quite different to the WorkSafe inspectorate and the health and safety laws. So if you're a single person company, you can take out a work cover policy. Or you can't take out a work cover policy, but you're still under the health and safety laws. I always put employment and knowing that you need work cover if you employ staff, but never really thought through workplace safety, OH&S, when you don't employ staff. So that's really an insightful thing. And, and that sort of leads me into the next question. Who are WorkSafe and what is their role? So WorkSafe is the health and safety regulator or the health and safety police And there's two arms. You might recall at one stage, many years ago, they used to be called the Victorian Work Cover Authority. That had more of the insurance focus and they're quite influenced by whoever's in government. So they might go towards having a lot more focus on the safety side of things. And so they changed from work cover to work safe because they wanted to be seen by the community as more about the proactive safety rather than an insurance company. And they have agents who look after the insurance side of it. Work safe policy, I think they call it now, is actually organised through one of their agents, whereas the inspectorate is in-house. They're based down at Geelong and they can walk into any workplace. You've got to show them documents, give them access to anyone or anything that they request. They can leave an improvement notice. If you don't comply with the improvement notice, you can actually be taken to court for that. And I've known employers who have been taken to court for some work safe issues and is sitting in a magistrate's court with criminals. It's not an environment that they've ever been in or expect to be in. So there is that reality to it. The other thing I might just say on that before we move on is that WorkSafe have just introduced on-the-spot fines, infringement notices. So if they see particular breaches of the law, they can fine individuals or the company. So they're, I think, about $1,800. So let's talk about that. So there's a bunch of people in Geelong. Yep that work for WorkSafe, not work cover and the insurance side of things, but they randomly rock up to your business premises. And what are the rules? Do you have to let them in? Can you go through that process if someone did knock on your door that's from WorkSafe? What do they need to do? Yeah, so they're authorised enforcement officers and they have their badge. They're the health and safety police, basically. So they will attend workplaces if there's a particular incidents that need to be notified to them. And there's fines of up to $200,000 for not notifying an incident. And that's within, as soon as the employer becomes aware of that type of incident, they have to notify WorkSafe. So a lot of people still don't know about that. If an ambulance is called to a workplace, WorkSafe are going to know about that. So they might come because there's been an accident or because something's been reported. There's the old disgruntled employee who rings up and makes an anonymous complaint. They often come out to investigate those and they do projects. So they do get the claims data. So they'll find industries where there's particular type of claim that's very common and so they'll target that industry so they investigate what sort of work they do what the employment rates are and so on if there's any particular like cohort I guess of employees that gets injured and they've got ergonomists and all sorts of safety specialists that work there and they'll develop a program for the inspectors to go out and deliver. And do they go there with the mindset of being like a policeman, you've done the wrong thing and we're going to shut you down and blah, blah, blah? Or do they go in there with a helpful attitude 
or is it just whoever you get on the day? There is an element of that. There's also an element of whatever the policy is at the time. Sometimes they just want to be big stick and they'll be very clear on that. Other times it's like, no, we're here to help. But they have to be really careful with how much they help. They can't really tell you what to do. So they'll say, here's some, I guess, ways that you could achieve compliance but they would suggest that you might need to actually engage a specialist. And any business that sort of employs staff has a workplace, whether it's a factory, a warehouse yep. or an office, they are straight away obliged to follow the rules and the laws of workplace safety, right? Absolutely. So then you open yourself up as a business owner not following that. So at any time an inspector can come in, check, but you could get fined and all sorts of things can happen by you not doing the right thing. So up until recently, all they've been able to do is they have to either leave an entry report, which says I came and I saw and everything was okay. If they find a breach, they can leave an improvement notice and they'll give you a period of time to rectify that and they'll give you some ideas and advice to say, you know, you could do A, B, C, Ds and then they'll come back. And if you haven't complied with that improvement notice, that's when they can actually start some proceedings to take you to court. Finally, if there is something that is an immediate risk, they can actually put a prohibition notice on. So you hear a lot of talk of like stop work or WorkSafe will shut you down and all that sort of thing. In reality, I mean, they're not going to shut a business down. If they saw something that was an immediate risk, yes, they have that process cease until certain steps have been put in place to reduce the risk. But it's a sort of a myth that WorkSafe are going to shut you down. And in terms of the state part of it, so WorkSafe is governed by states and so on. Are the rules different in different states or is there the same rules as just governed by the states? It's pretty much the same rules. Again, little some changes in language, the terminology, but gosh, I think it was about 2011, there was an attempt to harmonise health and safety laws because it's very difficult when you've got a business that's operating in every state and you're operating under different laws. Employers find that frustrating and time-consuming, managing through all the different legislation. And all the other states jumped on board with that except for Victoria. It was based on the Victorian legislation. We were already all good. Yeah. Fantastic. Yep. And you mentioned WorkSafe can issue infringement notices and on-the-spot fines to individuals and corporations. Can you give us some examples where you've actually seen fines issued? Well, it's only been in place since 31st of July. Oh, there <laughs> so you go. So you haven't seen any yet? No, I haven't. I know one of the things they can issue on-the-spot fine for is around record-keeping sufficient records. I haven't really done a deep dive into it at the moment. Really, it's more things that they wouldn't necessarily be putting an improvement notice on for. So, look, it's been in the legislation since, I think, 2004. Okay. So you can sort of question, well, why it's taken to now to introduce it. It could be revenue. And maybe. just as a guide, do you know sort of what the fines we're looking at? Is it from $200 to yeah. 100 grand? Is there a big scale or? No, it's in the hundreds up to about 1800 Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. So, Denise, I mean, this is not the most fun topic to talk about, but what happens when there is a fatality at work? It's very traumatic. At the time, I have really only had a close connection with one fatality in that I had done some work with the company over the years. And yeah, I mean, I was one of the people they rang straight away. And as these things tend to happen at 10 past 4, 4.30 on a Friday afternoon for a long weekend, everyone was really upset and it's a lot of pressure on you because you've got work safe there. And when the investigators come in, most of them are detectives from Vic Police. And so that's what they're there to do, there to interview and investigate. So whatever workers are there that are traumatised. In this particular situation, happened at four o'clock in the afternoon and the coroner didn't get out to the site 
till midnight. So it was myself. I immediately rang a lawyer and the next person I rang was a counsellor. So we organised. We had the lawyer there that night, which was absolutely fantastic. And I do say to people, that is the first person you want to call because you really need them there if work's safer there. Because people will tend to be, they just want to talk. They just want to say lots of stuff in that situation and it's not the time at all to be potentially giving interviews. And leading into that, obviously there's some changes in the laws around manslaughter and so on, but can you talk about that? If someone did die on site, can the director be charged for manslaughter and what sort of circumstances would that play out? Yeah, so industrial manslaughter was introduced just in the last sort of 12 to 18 months. There was already provision in the Health and Safety Act for reckless endangerment and reckless endangerment was when A classic example, I guess, is a truck that the owner knows the brakes are faulty and they just say, bad luck, just get in that truck, I need you to do this. And so they knowingly put the person at risk. And that was already in the Health and Safety Act. So the industrial manslaughter came in, it applies only to company officers, so it doesn't apply to any employees. So a supervisor, for example, doesn't come under that. They could come under reckless endangerment. And there's quite a strict test for industrial manslaughter And one of it's basically criminal negligence. So you've got to be a pretty bad recalcitrant employer to meet this whole test for industrial manslaughter. And has there been a case where someone's gone to jail or convicted of that? There has in the other states. There hasn't that I know of here. There might have been one. I've got a vague recollection of one. But certainly the other states. And one of the big, big issues is falls. Mm. And it was to do with um, a fall. Yeah. Yeah. When we think of... OHS, we automatically think of physical injury in the workplace. Do issues regarding employees' mental health and well-being covered by OHS regulations and laws? Yeah, they certainly are, Savan. So there's always been a section in the Act around monitoring people's health, and people traditionally think of that as hearing testing or lung function when people are exposed to you know noise or chemicals. But that also refers to monitoring mental health. So. What we've seen over the last few years, and you can imagine like the last 18 months with COVID, Mm. certainly exacerbated mental health injuries, as they call it, and it's been more prominent in all areas of life, but certainly in the workplace. So it's actually now become as accepted and normal as the physical hazards. And there's a set of criteria, I guess, or circumstances that are known to potentially contribute to mental health injuries. So just as a forklift is dangerous to a person, certain work relationships in the workplace, too much work, not enough work, lack of control over work, all contribute to mental health injuries. Wow, that's a really broad space. And we have had a previous podcast talking about health and wellbeing in the organisation. And it is a tough area because it's one that sort of people put their head in the sand or whatever. But so it's really about making sure that you provide an environment as an employer to employees that encourages good health and well-being, making sure that they're well looked after, they're being checked in on. So is, is it pretty much around policies and things like that? Because I mean, a forklift is quite easy. You've got to wear a helmet and all the rest of it. But how do you create a safe environment in that health and well-being space as an employer? Is it a lot of good documentation and process that you can illustrate? Uh, look, documentation 
It's just that. It's words on paper. So yes, it's needed for compliance. It demonstrates that we do things. But if those things that you say you're doing, you're not doing, then what's the paper worth? So it's again, it's this set of criteria to go. And I mean, people can have different, I guess, ideas of what these relationships and workloads and so on are like in the workplace. A lot of people will start with a survey. So they'll survey, do a whole survey of all the employees and asking around these questions. Some of it would be observation, poor relationships in the workplace. So if someone doesn't get along with anyone or a manager and an employee, there's a real personality clash or so on. I mean, that's enough to trigger mental health injury. So those are the things that I guess people see. And they're the hardest to respond to, but yeah. they're the most important. You just can't... You can't ignore them. Not a, no, you've got to be able to tackle it. And they're very difficult, really difficult things. To and I guess as an employer, you probably need to encourage a, a workplace where people actually speak out. Because sometimes, I mean, I'm stuck in an office in the corner and the staff are in all over the place and you don't get to see everything. So, mm. And if we're out and about, there are things that are happening without you seeing it. So I guess in, in a way you probably got to create an environment that people feel comfortable to speak out. And if you do that, that generally does help. But it is an area that's obviously had a lot of attention in the most recent times. Yeah, it is. We call it an emerging issue in health and safety. And people used to think for well-being, it was a box of fruit in the lunchroom, go for a walk at lunchtime <laughs> or something, and that was all they needed to do. But there's a lot of guidance as well. So Fantastic. New South Wales Safe Work, which is the equivalent of our WorkSafe, have published a code of practice. And there's even an ISO standard now that's very new and it's management of psychosocial risk. That's what it's called, psychosocial yeah, yeah. risk. Yeah. You've been in the industry 20 years Ooh. and I'm sure you've seen lots of different things. And what are the most common things do you see that business owners do wrong? I think that they just don't really think health and safety is a thing because it's just what they do every day or what they've always done and then... I'm unfortunately trained to always think of the worst. So I could go into a workplace and straight away just go, you know, like forklift and a wall and you go, no, anything big is really quite dangerous. I did a little research a couple of years ago of fatalities. It's after the fatality that my client had and I looked at like press releases and incidents in the other states and there was this common theme of handling anything big and bulky and they're actually mostly men in their 50s. And there was just like 11 deaths in six months. Jeez. Yeah, it's quite a high rate of deaths. And so when people are handling stuff every day, you don't even think about it. You don't even know that it's a problem. Yeah, so I guess it's assessing the business and the industry you're in and understanding the risks involved. And mm. us being in an office, we probably don't think of it like it is thought of on a construction site. Mm. But I guess we're sitting on our bums all day in front of a computer and there's a lot of risks for health and well-being in that scenario as well. Yeah. So it is quite broad and I do like that employers do need to put that as a priority in their thinking, mm -hmm. I guess. And I can ask you, Savan, if someone <laughs> was to be killed or injured in your business, like how would that happen? How could that happen? How could that happen? Yeah, there's probably ways. It'd probably be more on the road for Correct. us yeah. and driving to clients or us maybe putting a little bit of pressure on our staff to get to somewhere and they're probably not thinking and driving to a client to present something and they've just had an accident because of the pressure we've put on them or the pressure of the job. I probably don't think paper cuts can kill anyone. That's probably the only way I can think of being in our industry. But I guess if you're 
on site or in a construction site, geez, there'd be thousands of examples, I would have thought. Yeah, and transport as well. Transport, yeah. Certainly white collar driving is always very, very high up on the list because... And what you mentioned there, that scenario of someone could be putting themselves under pressure with their workload, then that's our psychosocial hazard. And certain people work in different ways. And so as a manager, it's being perceptive and aware of uh, how your individuals are travelling. Yeah. And if you had to give one piece of advice to a business that employs staff, what would that be? I think that you just need to, if there's any inkling of anything that's kind of not right, then you just need to get onto that straight away. And it could be, there's a saying, oh, that was an accident waiting to happen. Mm. Don't be the person that says that. And especially if it was something that killed someone, you don't want to be saying, oh, I knew that. It's happened so many times. I wish I had done something about it. I wish I had spoken up. Nobody wants that on their conscience. So can be interpersonal issues, whatever it is, it's just tackle it. I like that saying, there was an accident waiting to happen. And I guess if you had that slogan in a kitchen in a construction site, I think it would really be powerful message to say mm. to the people that are walking in and out of there, the directors, officers, supervisors, reading that message. Yep. Yeah, it's an accident waiting to happen. I like that saying to drive change and drive that health and well-being in the workplace. Yeah. yeah, the funny thing about that is in the health and safety world, we don't use the term accident <laughs> <laughs> because an accident is an unplanned event and from the health and safety perspective, all these things are foreseeable. Yeah. Mm. But again, that comes back to the language because accident is a term that people can relate to. I mean, at Alexander Spencer, we assist many clients and I want to talk a little bit about tender applications and we've been involved in many of them with our clients. And we've noticed over the years that some of these tenders set out minimum standards for health and safety, having management systems and top of that, it is becoming more common in these things that, that they're certified. So tell us a little bit about what is a safety management system and where do you get one? Yes, well, safety management systems were the panacea for all health and safety, probably in the 10 years ago. It's a set of, I guess, documentation, policies, procedures, checklists, forms that instruct how you manage health and safety, how you manage the work. So, And there is an ISO standard for that it's policy, it's planning, it's resources, it's budgets, it's communication, training, emergency procedures, the actual safety around the operations. So you know, falls, we've talked about that, manual tasks, driving, for example, if you identified that as a risk in your business, then you would have a safe driving policy. With any like ISO standard, we've got some reporting, some monitoring, some KPIs, and some continuous improvement. So it follows those principles. But over the years, they can tend to be, well, back in the day, they were folders and they gathered dust and, <laughs> and that was about it. So two schools of thought on how effective they are in actually improving frontline worker safety. That said, it is becoming more and more common and I had a, a small business, there's 12 people working there now, but again, like so many businesses in the last sort of 12 months, exponential growth and they want to um, get on their government tenders, the Department of Treasury and Finance. And they downloaded their health and safety guidelines criteria and it was all around safety management systems. So a lot of companies, if you're operating in that space and I'm working with a commercial solar installer at the moment, again, they've had a lot of growth and they are projecting a lot of growth. They're on a growth trajectory. And I have just said, just do it. Just get safety, quality, environmental, do it now, get certified. When you get the tenders come in, you tick, tick, tick the boxes. And then if it is mandatory, well, 
you're all set. And if you're playing in that space, I think it's the best thing to do. Yeah. Mm. What are the costs of getting a management system in place? I think you could probably still buy off-the-shelf management systems, but they need a lot of tailoring, but they give you the structure. But the biggest thing is having someone in-house, administration. Someone needs to format documents. Someone needs to do document control. Someone needs to, you know, if you say doing a, a monthly safety communication, someone needs to be putting that out. Someone needs to be making sure it's done, ticking it off and just keeping a system going. So once the system's in place, it's largely administrative. And the mistake some businesses make is they don't allocate any resources. So they've grown. They don't have any HR. They don't have any admin support. That's 100% what this needs. We've discussed OHS in quite a detail and we've touched a little bit about work cover, but how does work cover fit in all of this? So work cover is an insurance scheme, it's mandatory and it's a no-fault system. So a worker doesn't have to approve how they were injured at work. They just have to be at work and have an injury that could have occurred at work. So if you lift boxes and you've got a back injury, one and one make two, that's it, it happened at work. Employee mm. gets stuck with it. And it's a very bureaucratic and very difficult system, no matter which side you're on really frustrating and expensive for employers and equally pretty horrible for injured workers as well. And when there's a, when an injury happens, whether it's the back example, yeah. I'm assuming in that scenario the employee would say, oh, I've hurt my back, can't come to work. At one point, once they establish it's from the work, who makes the claim? Is it the employer's obligation to make a claim? Is it the employee that rings up WorkSafe? How does that work? Or is it just an open communication between the two parties that decide we're going to make a work cover yeah, claim? No, so how does that work? Yeah, it's very regulated with timeframes and so on. So technically an employee, an injured worker has 30 days to notify the employer. I've never actually seen that upheld. Because sometimes I'll come back, you know, a year later and go, oh, I hurt my back when I used to work for you. And those claims get up. So, really? Yeah. And, and even though there's a rule that says you've got to make yeah. a claim. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So some strange stuff goes on there. Basically, so sometimes the first thing an employer might know is they receive a work cover claim form in the mail because the employee, the worker, has got that from the post office, filled it in and sent it in. The employer then has five days to get that into WorkSafe. I think it's pretty sure it's five days. And they can ask to have that claim to say they deny liability, but it's costly and time-consuming. So the best thing to do is really engage with your worker who's injured and not get into this position where it's like us against them. No matter how the employer feels, the very, very best thing to do is to keep that worker engaged. So contact them regularly, keep them up to date with what's going on in the workplace. You know, if there's newsletters or something that gets sent out. If there's someone in the workplace that they've got a good relationship with, keep that person to keep in touch with them, invite them into things. And most importantly is to try and get them back to work. Even it's not their normal job and it's a job they might sort of struggle with. Even if you can get them in you know, three hours a day and if you've got to help them get transport in or whatever it is, in, in the long run, that effort that you put in at the start can really just determine which way the claim goes. And if you've got someone who's off work for a year or two, it's like there's nothing you can do. You're paying, yeah. it's your premium's going up. But there used to be a stat that if someone was off work for more than two weeks, there was only a 50% chance of them coming back. Geez, that's so a that short period in, of time, isn't yep, it? It's that engagement initially. And also they'll go off to their doctor, but through the insurance company you can ask them to go to 
yep. another doctor or get your doctor to ring their doctor or get rehab involved through the insurance company. So really just a lot of people, they'll get a certificate from the worker's doctor and go, oh, he's off for 28 days, there's nothing we can do, when that's not the case at all. I guess with physical injury and it's when someone falls off a ladder and whatnot, it's quite obvious it happened in the workplace. When a claim is made and it's sort of ambiguous, does work cover then investigate and check whether this is legitimate or is that the employer's role to say, I think this doesn't look right? How does that conversation play out if there's some kind of sus is this a real claim or not? Who starts that process? The employer starts that process. So the agents who manage the claims on behalf of WorkSafe, I think five of them, and they've got massive caseloads and they've got employers and they've got employees at them. And so it's really the employer who has to say, we want this claim investigated. We deny liability and do that as early as possible. The agent has 28 days in which to accept or reject a claim if there's lost time associated with it. 28 days is not very long. And they will send out an investigator, called a circumstance investigator, and they will interview the worker and people at the workplace and, and come out and do a work visit and gather as much background as you can on the worker. And that's where things like induction, incredibly important. If you don't have some record that the person's been inducted, it doesn't look good. And training, even like toolbox meetings, conversations with signatures, just some evidence that they've been trained in their job and they'll also send them off to a doctor who's usually a specialist in a particular obviously you know if it's a mental health injury it's a psychiatrist if it's a sprain strain type injury it might be a neurologist or orthopedic surgeon or whoever's available and they again big caseloads they just go half an hour whatever it is what are the facts and that determines the claim basically there's nowhere to go after that it doesn't and matter what the employer, how they feel about it. If it's got through that process and it's accepted, you just got to deal with it and try and keep engaged with that person and get them back to work. And mitigate it from happening to someone else. Yes. Yeah. I understand there's government grants available in this space where employers, businesses can access. And I know that we've referred you some clients over the years which have had access to that. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that government grant and how does your business and you provide that service with that government grant? Yep. So WorkSafe have had a program called the OHS Essentials Program. It's been around for a, quite a few years, maybe 10 years. Unfortunately, not many people know about it. And it's accessible to the employers with up to 60 people. So, so long as you've got a work cover policy and you've got less than 60 staff, then you qualify for this support. And WorkSafe have an independent panel of consultants and I'm on that panel, but we have to go through a rigorous tender process to be on that panel. So there's an application form on the WorkSafe website and so long as you're in the criteria, you'll be approved and you haven't had it. You can only get it once every three years. And then WorkSafe just, you can nominate a particular consultant or, or they can send you a random one. So obviously anybody that wants my services in particular needs to nominate that when they apply, which is Safe Sense Workplace Safety. The WorkSafe send an email to the employer and an email to me and then I contact them. It's limited in what it provides, but it's a really good start and really good scoping. So they provide three hours of consultancy time initially, and in that time we have to develop an action plan for that employer. Then there's a follow-up within, after three months, so between three and six months, there's a further two hours, which is really just a follow-up, hi, how are you going with the plan? And this current version of this program, there is a visit around the 12-month mark. And so in all the times 
they've had the program in place, it's changed a little and this is the first time they've had the 12-month visit. Often in 12 months people have forgotten about this OHS Essentials program so it's not always sort of as easy to have that interest still in 12 months' time but it is just to, again to check in and see how people have gone with implementing action plan. Obviously we can provide support beyond that if people need it. That's what you get for the program anyway. Well the program's brilliant to be honest with you. You get three hours initially, you get an action plan written and guided by an expertise yep. like yourself and then there's another two-hour follow-up after three months and did you say that the current one also has a 12-month one thereafter well yep. I mean I think the government need to really publicize this and, and I mean as accountants and advisors to businesses I think this is an amazing product mm. or amazing grant that most people should really look yep. at so yeah it's fantastic it that is. it's available yeah one concern sometimes people have is oh does this information go back to the inspectorate? <laughs> That's a really good question. Yeah. So does it go back? And no, what is it about? No. How does well, it work? The program would, wouldn't have integrity if it did that. So the inspectors often refer people into the program if they go out to sites. It's held in good stead if they go out somewhere and it's like, yep, we've had the consultant out, we're working through it. It certainly looked on favourably. But no, we do have this quality control over our work and we do have to send in what are called de-identified action plans. So we strip everything to do with the employer, even the industry, out and they will just quality control check that we're giving the right advice and doing the right thing and we've actually been out to the people. <laughs> but apart from that, it wouldn't work. If anybody thought it's just a segue to get an inspector out, no one would want to yeah, do it. Yeah, and I can see why a business owners would think that. But on the contrary, if you were part of that OHS Essentials Program, mm -hmm. You've been selected, you're going to site and you see something like, it's terrible. Like, mm. I don't know, there's no harnesses, there's no this, there's no that. And you're like, this is really dangerous. Yeah. Are you obliged to do anything about that or do you just walk away from there and say, well, I've got to help them out, but they've got an issue right now. Yes. What do you do there? I haven't had that situation. And I know obviously we've got an obligation to explain to the company why we think that's so dangerous and we would advise them against continuing with that practice until they'd done certain things, mm. that is an answer I don't actually know. And you'd th probably think if, if someone's going to go out and log online and request yeah. someone, they'd do at least a little bit of the housekeeping anyway. So Yeah, it might just be a situation yeah, where they actually don't know. And again, when people have been doing things for years, they often they don't know. So we pointed out to them and ultimately it's up to them if they want to continue to take that risk. But we certainly point out why they shouldn't and how they're in breach of the law and what the potential consequences yeah. of continuing with that are. Denise, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us. It's been really insightful. I've learned so much about health and well-being as well as occupational health and safety. Thank you. Thank you, Savan. This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer. At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952. And we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. 
And that's the bottom line.